Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in once again for Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies... A pianist and a nightclub bouncer go on a road trip together through a romanticised civil rights era deep south. You never win with violence, Tony. You only win when you maintain your dignity. Dignity always prevails. An ageing floriculturist down on his uppers is tempted by the cartel and starts transporting contraband across state lines. Officer, hi. You need help? Uh, no, no, I'm fine, thank you. What do you got there? Uh, little pecans. I'm delivering pecans to my niece. And pecans? Yeah, pecans. She makes the worst pecan pie you've ever tasted. I feel sorry for her husband, but and I feel sorry for the pecans too. <laughs> and Netflix finally demonstrates a commitment to cinema history with almost 50 films from the silent era to World War II that paint a very different portrait of the history of American movies from the one we thought we knew. Say, there isn't any chance of anyone climbing that tree from the ground floor, is there? What do you care? Hmm. I wish some good-looking man would climb up here and get me. <laughs> Last weekend, two high-profile American films, one with Academy Award pretensions, opened across the country, so I dutifully went to watch them. Little did I know that the rest of New Zealand was going to see this instead. <laughs> This is Dragon Ball Super, Broly, the 20th film in the Dragon Ball franchise. And according to the stats, it took $309,000 at the New Zealand box office, about 20% more than Green Book. Once again, we learn that it pays never to underestimate the fan loyalty for beloved properties like this one. And we might find that the saviour of theatrical exhibition is going to be films for obsessive completists rather than films we can just take or leave. In other sadder news this week, the world of cinema, and I literally mean the world of cinema when talking about these two, lost a pair of extraordinary talents. They might only have been well-known names in the film festival and cineast communities, but their bodies of work and the legacies they represent are profound. Jonas Mekas, who died in New York last week at the age of 93, was a Lithuanian emigre who turned his love of film and a relentless obsession with his own life and its details into an avant-garde body of work that some say predicted YouTube and video blogging. He wrote for the magazine Film Culture, a magazine he started in 1954, and for The Village Voice. He started the Anthology Film Archives in Manhattan, a screening centre, museum and cinematheque dedicated to experimental and avant-garde film and video. And he was still making art and showing it until last year. That's a life in film, and on film.
Dusan Makaviev was a Serbian director who made scandalous films notorious for racy content and political material that was not, shall we say, aligned with the communist rulers of Yugoslavia. His best-known film in the West, W.R. Mysteries of the Organism from 1971, was banned in Yugoslavia for 16 years, and he was forced to try and find work overseas, eventually making The Coca-Cola Kid in Australia in 1985. With Makaviev and Mekas gone, you can genuinely say that they won't be making them like that anymore. Dear Dolores, D-E-A-R, this is an animal. As I'm writing this letter, I'm eating potato chips, and I'm starting to get thirsty. And you know this is pathetic, right? Tell me what you're trying to say. I don't know. You know, I'll miss her. Then say that but do it in a manner that no one else has ever done it before. Something like, uh, put this down. Falling in love with you was the easiest thing I've ever done. Nothing matters to me but you. And every day I'm alive, I'm aware of this. I loved you the day I met you. I love you today. And I will love you the rest of my life. So can I put a P.S. kiss the kids? A P.S.? Yeah, like at the end. That's like clinging a cowbell at the end of Shostakovich is the seventh. Right. That's good. It's perfect, Tony. 29 years ago, Spike Lee's masterpiece, Do the Right Thing, was snubbed at the Oscars in favour of a much more palatable story of race in America, Driving Miss Daisy. There are echoes of that in this year's lineup as Mr. Lee's Black Klansman is nominated for Best Picture alongside another film about an odd couple in a car, Green Book. There are some other parallels that don't really do Green Book any favours. A film that is ostensibly about race is told almost exclusively from the point of view of the white protagonist, and the writers and directors of both films are white. Green Book even acknowledges its debt to driving Miss Daisy with a scene featuring an impromptu outdoor urination homage. Viggo Mortensen, famously Aragorn in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, plays Tony Vallelonga, known as Tony Lip, for his ability to bullshit. He's a nightclub bouncer at the Copa and a prodigious eater. Mr Mortensen has attempted to add some beef to his own physique to account for this, but it's not entirely convincing, even though the rest of his characterisation is... Tell me that don't smell good. I've never had fried chicken in my life. You people love the fried chicken. You have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, right? I'm good. During some Copa downtime, Tony Lip gets a job as a driver, come factotum, for a black musician named Dr. Don Shirley. Shirley plays a kind of virtuoso pop jazz piano, the kind of music that would make a black musician easy for a middle-class white audience to accept, and the kind of music that appears to offer Dr Shirley little pleasure in playing. Anyway, it's a six-week tour of middle America and the South, and it's 1961. Even Nat King Cole has had trouble down there, so Tony's job is to keep Dr Shirley safe. On the long drives and in motel rooms and diners, our travelling companions at first bristle at each other and then eventually learn to love each other. How is that? Salty. Have you ever considered becoming a food critic? 
No. Not really. Why, is there money in that? I'm just saying you have a marvelous way with words when describing food. Salty. So vivid one can almost taste it. Hey, I'm just saying it's salty. And salt's cheating. Any cook can make things salty. To make it taste good without the salt, we'll just see other flavors. That's the trick. I mean, take the basic ingredients. We should really get going soon if we expect to get to Pittsburgh by dinner. Hey, when I was in the Army, I know a guy from Pittsburgh. Except he called it Titsburg. But he said all the women there had huge tits. That's absurd. Why would women in Pittsburgh have larger breasts than, say, women in New York? Guess we'll find out, huh? <laughs> Shirley is played by the great Maheshala Ali, Oscar winner for Moonlight a couple of years ago, and he works hard to find some depths for the character that the script doesn't really provide. Shirley's contradictions are far more interesting dramatically than Tony Lip's journey from genial bigot to a spinner of homespun wisdom. But these contradictions are presented to us rather than examined because Green Book never stops being Tony's story. I don't question the right of these filmmakers to tell this story. It's obviously very personal to one of the screenwriters, Nick Vallelonga, Tony Lip's son, who will have grown up listening to these stories at his father's knee. And I also don't doubt that this story is, notwithstanding the usual Hollywood romanticisation and condensation, largely true. What I'm wondering is why we need this film right now. Do we need it? Even though the relationship between Tony Lip and Dr Shirley was genuine and lifelong, does it help illuminate any wider truths about the world we lived in then or the world we live in now? Especially when director Peter Farrelly best known for the sophomoric comedies There's Something About Mary and Dumb and Dumber, seems to be unable to elevate the subsidiary characters above their various ethnic and cultural stereotypes. What little we see of the African-American community in Green Book seems to be viewed through a foggy lens of whiteness. They are either feckless horseshoe players, petty criminals, or happy minstrels in a blues bar. The idea that Dr Shirley might finally come to life playing rhythm and blues on an upright piano in that bar when he's already told us that he'd rather be playing Chopin is borderline offensive, frankly. As my mother always said, what kind of brand new fool are you? Look at them over there. Take a good look at the officer you hit. Look at him. He's over there having a grand old time chatting up with his pals. Enjoying a nice cup of coffee. And where are you? In here, with me, who did nothing. Yet I'm the one who pays the price. I'm the one who's going to miss the Birmingham show. Hey, I'm going to lose a lot of money, too, if you don't play Birmingham. So that little temper tantrum, was it worth it? Hmm? You never win with violence, Tony. You only win when you maintain your dignity. Dignity always prevails. Green Book is rated M for some offensive language, and if I handed out stars, it would lose another half star for being an utterly unnecessary two hours and ten minutes long. Most films are too damn long these days. Family's the most important thing. Don't do what I did. I put work in front of family. I thought it was more important to be somebody out there than... The damn failure I was in my own home. 
A few weeks ago, I read a story in the New York Times about a wonderful exemplar of the capitalist system of supply and demand. In the United States, as in other countries, there's a dire shortage of long-distance truck drivers. The work is poorly paid, the hours are long, and there are long periods of time where you're away from home. But at the same time, a great many retired middle-class Americans, posties, nurses, etc., don't have enough retirement income to live on. In swoops the invisible hand of the market, and boom, 80-year-old teachers driving huge Transformers-style big rigs hundreds of kilometres at a time just so they can afford to buy the grandkids a graduation present and, I don't know, eat, I guess. I thought about these heroes of the new economy while I was watching Clint Eastwood's new film, The Mule, the other day. In it, the 88-year-old Mr Eastwood plays 90-year-old Earl Stone, a prize-winning grower of daylilies, or a grower of prize-winning daylilies, if you prefer. His business falls on hard times because of that bloody internet, and he finds himself foreclosed upon. This being a post-retirement age Eastwood film, chickens start coming home to roost. Not in the usual way, where a retired gunfighter has to buckle up his gun belt one more time, or a Korean War veteran has to sneer the street gang from next door off his porch, but he has to face his family, the one he all but abandoned in favour of high times and social misdemeanours while he was on the road selling flowers. Kicked out of his granddaughter's pre-wedding brunch and with nowhere to go, He is approached by a young Latino friend of one of the bridesmaids. He's offered a job, a driving job, with his clean record and unthreatening all-American senior citizen credentials. He would be able to drive the cartel's illicit white powder all over the country undetected. Out of options, he says yes, but when he discovers how lucrative the first run is, he jumps in boots and all, even buying a brand new ute and some new Ray-Bans and splashing out on some female company. Eastwood hasn't been this successful with the ladies since the bridges of Madison County. It's all going great. He's popular with the head of the cartel, played by Andy Garcia, and he can splash the cash to win back the love of his granddaughter and repair the veterans' social club. But the feds are closing in. Bradley Cooper is the DEA agent, paying back the favour of being given the Academy Award-nominated role in American Sniper by Mr Eastwood by adding some star power to this picture, even though he sleepwalks through most of it. Eastwood has been threatening retirement, at least as an actor, for ages now, but he's still got it. He turns on the charm in awkward ways that betray the character's failures as a husband and father, and then continues to convince when it all starts to fall apart. How did you come into all that money? Well, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a high-end gigolo. (laughs) Come on. I'm a drug mule for the cartel, and I've got 305 kilos of cocaine sitting in the back of my truck. Where he lets himself down, though, is as director. It's a workmanlike production, but when we return to locations like the DEA office or the tyre shop where Earl picks up his packages, each scene is too reminiscent of the one before, as if he's using the same setups. We know that Eastwood as a director is as efficient as Woody Allen. Good prep, few takes, on the golf course by 3pm. And that's how you get to keep making a film every year for nearly 50 years. But it feels as if he's put more work into his own performance than into the rest of the film. Maybe that's the compromise you make when you're 88. 
The subsidiary characters are sketched rather than drawn, even when his own daughter Alison is playing his screen daughter. The Latino characters are universally clichés, which some strong performers like Ignacio Sericho as Earl's increasingly frustrated handler Julio do their best to overcome. The women that Earl aren't related to are viewed through the lens of an unreconstructed, horny 88-year-old man with all of the disrespect that implies. But I'm inclined to allow the old man his indulgences. The strengths of the mule just about outweigh the weaknesses, and there's a lot more going on in Eastwood's portrayal of Earl than meets the eye. It's easy, if you're not paying attention, to write Clint Eastwood off as a right-wing cowboy workaholic, but that sells short one of the most interesting of American filmmakers. When he started his own production company back in 1967, he called it Malpaso. I thought that was a wry statement about the wisdom of going it alone, or the impossibility of making a perfect choice. It translates as bad move or bad step. But to my disappointment, it's just a creek near the army base where he did his basic training and where he eventually bought all the land around it. It doesn't matter. Malpaso makes me smile when I see it on the credits of a film. I always feel like Eastwood's rolling the dice, as artists always do. Need help, sir? Oh, uh, officer, hi. You need help? Uh, no, no, I'm fine, thank you. What do you got there? Uh, pecans. I'm delivering pecans to my niece. Pecans? Here. Yeah, pecans. She makes the worst pecan pie you've ever tasted. I feel sorry for her husband, but and I feel sorry for the pecans, too. <laughs> the Mule is rated M for offensive language and nudity. Only half of it is Clint's. And I expect younger audiences might get a bit frustrated by the grandpa-knows-best tone that runs through the whole thing. With my rope and my saddle and my horse and my gun I'm a happy cowboy If I'm riding with my cattle and I'm always on the run I'm a happy cowboy Last time I talked about Netflix on this program, I got a complaint that I was advertising corporate entertainment as if cinemas, distributors, production companies, etc. aren't in the movie business to make money. Anyway, Netflix is very much in the business of movies now, as their 10 Academy Award nominations for Roma will testify to. The biggest complaint about Netflix here and overseas has been the lack of respect for cinema history. Very little to be found before 1980. No appreciable curation or guidance around classic film. I know the Netflix tax is not very high compared to other entertainment options, but you always feel that they can do better. And now, in a small but amazing way, they actually are. If you search the word pioneers in Netflix, you'll find two series that will upend whatever it was you thought you knew about the history of film. First example, if you thought African-American cinema started with Black Panther and Get Out or Spike Lee or Cleopatra Jones and Shaft, the 20 films in the Pioneers of African-American Cinema collection will readjust your thinking. Selected from a recent box set from the Kino International Company, this series features 20 films made by black filmmakers for black film companies and black audiences between 1915 and 1946. These films weren't lost as such. The materials were in archives, in tins full of dangerous and combustible nitrate film. But they hadn't been preserved the way that films from the big companies had been. 
Much of the damage was impossible to repair. In many cases, because of budget and other limitations, the original material wasn't that great to begin with. But these films give us an insight into a thriving, moving picture culture and a world that mainstream Hollywood and mainstream America was simply not interested in. Many of these films have religious themes. The 1925 silent film Body and Soul features the first screen appearance by the legendary Paul Robeson as an escaped criminal posing as a preacher and bringing an entire community to ruin. But there is racy affair too. Dirty Gertie from Harlem, USA, in which a sexy dancer tries to start a new life on a Caribbean island based on the novel Rain by Somerset Maugham. Say, there isn't any chance of anyone climbing that tree from the ground floor, is there? What do you care? Hmm, I wish some good-looking man would climb up here and get me. <laughs> and my favourite in the collection, The Bronze Buckaroo, which we heard from earlier, an African-American western starring Herb Jeffries, in which ventriloquism plays a crucial part in the plot. But wait, there's more. Late last year, Kino put together a collection of early films by women called Pioneers, First Women Filmmakers, and most of that box set can be found in a similar Netflix package. They show up like a TV series, but they are actually all individual films. I confess to being pretty ignorant before now about the importance of women filmmakers in the very early days of cinema, but it makes sense when you think about it. Film was new, there were no rules, especially about who could tell stories and who couldn't. There was no censorship, no corporate entities to dictate who could play and who couldn't. And women were experiencing the first wave of feminism, and often their star power as performers gave them influence over the screen that we are only now starting to nudge back in the direction of equality. For example, I'd heard of Mabel Normand, the actress from the Fatty Arbuckle scandal, but I had no idea that she basically taught Charlie Chaplin how to direct. The 17 films in the Netflix version of the collection are all silent and they're all a great entry point into both the richness of classic cinema and the essential role that women played in the development of it until, you know, the patriarchy stepped in and kept all the fun for themselves. That's Joe's letter, ain't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, what kind of trouble do you suppose he's in? I don't know, but it must be something pretty bad. Because Joe's not the kind to holler for help unless he really needed it. That's right. When he was riding range with us down in Texas, he always took care of any trouble that came his way. Sickness was the only thing that ever licked him. Pioneers of African-American cinema and Pioneers First Women Filmmakers are currently streaming on Netflix along with the documentary series Five Came Back, which is about the World War II experiences of five big Hollywood directors like John Huston and John Ford and how it affected their work afterwards. They also have all of the World War II features that documentary references, and you can hear more of me raving about Five Came Back on Jesse Mulligan's show back in 2017, and there's a link to that on our website. And that's our program for this week. Earlier on in the show, we mentioned the passing of two of cinema's most non-conforming directors, but this week we also mourn the death of one of the greatest screen composers and arrangers. Michel Legrand was 86 years old, two years younger than Clint Eastwood, and still working until last year. He contributed a score to the newly completed Orson Welles film The Other Side of the Wind for Netflix. Best known to film fans for his collaborations with Jacques Demy, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Rochefort, he won an Oscar and a Golden Globe for this little number. 
with lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman and vocals by Noel Harrison. From the Thomas Crown Affair in 1968, this is The Windmills of My Mind. Why did summer go so quickly? Was it something that you said? Lovers walk along the shore and leave their footprints in the sand. Is the sound of distant drumming just the fingers? I'm Dan Slevin, and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin, that's all one word. And there's more of me in writing at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen. Next week, Julia Roberts tries to protect her drug addicted teenage son in Ben is Back. And The Hate You Give is about a black teenager caught between two worlds, the poor neighbourhood where she lives and the elite white prep school she attends. Please join me at the same time next week. Images unwind Like the circles that you find In the windmills of your mind I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't, right? Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.